If you look to Exodus chapter 13, our opening reading for this morning will be uh, the first two verses of that chapter, and then we're going to skip to verses 11 to 16. Don't worry, we'll read throughout the whole chapter uh, this morning, but just like the last few chapters we've been in, it kind of jumps back and forth between uh, methods of remembrance of God's faithfulness and then the present narrative. So we want to kind of piece these together. So Exodus 13, 1 to 2, then 11 to 16, God's word says this. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast. Skipping to verse 11, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. The events of the Exodus have occurred in in rapid succession. If we think back through the last uh, few months as we've journeyed through this amazing story, the ten plagues, uh, the taking of, of Egypt's firstborn, the haste of the Israelites departing Egypt. Next week, we will witness God's mighty hand part the waters for his people when they come to the Red Sea and they are boxed in. But today... The Israelites are walking. The text will later note that they are in battle formation. They've been pushed out. If you think about it, they've been pushed out of the only thing that they've known, and they've been pushed out in a hurry. They've been subjected to much difficulty. The death of their own children at the hands of Pharaoh. The good news of deliverance, if you recall, where they worshipped God, and then that was followed by an even more difficult labor where Pharaoh oppressed them even more. The, they've witnessed the plagues sweeping across the land and the terrible noise of wailing and mourning as the firstborn of, of the Egyptian sons was taken. We can imagine now the rumble of their feet shuffling across the desert floor, the sand, the dust. Freedom at hand, a journey to a promised land, lies before them. Reflection upon God's deliverance is necessary. Knowing that he is near, we will later find out in this passage that he is leading them by cloud and by fire. Now they have been called to consecrate or set apart their firstborn. They have been set free from the tyranny of Pharaoh And they are now entrusted to the Lord's service. Our first point for this morning, they are redeemed for God's purpose. Redeemed for God's purpose. Now, consecrate isn't a word that it's 
probably part of your normal vocabulary. I don't know if I've ever heard that used in a normal day-to-day conversation, consecrate. It means this. It means to set something apart for service or, or a religious purpose. God has called Israel to set apart the firstborn from the family to his service. Culturally speaking, the firstborn is of great significance to the family unit. He is the heir of the estate, carries on the name. He, in a sense, represents the entirety of the family. God is calling Israel to be his set-apart people as represented in the consecrating of the firstborn. Moreover, the first of what was produced within this people, it belonged to God. From the firstborn to the first fruits, it is given to God. Who? First. We can draw some application. God calls us to give first to him. Because it is a reminder of Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It is all his anyways. Everything is God's represented in the giving of the firstborn. What exactly is involved in consecrating the firstborn? From what we gather, it granted the Israelites a picture or reminder of their redemption, of their saving, of their deliverance. The firstborn, if we notice in the text, is is redeemed by a sacrifice. If we look to verses 12 to 13, it should be on the screens. It says, you shall set apart, there's that word, set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. And I want you to focus on this last statement here. Every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall what? Redeem. You shall sacrifice on behalf of them. Redeem them. The key word here is redeem. The firstborn was was redeemed with the sacrifice of a lamb. Similar to the sacrifice of the lamb for the Passover, where the blood of the lamb, if we recall from last week, was placed on the doorpost. And by the sign of the blood, God's judgment, what? Passed over Israel. We see here redemption of the firstborn by the sacrifice of the lamb. The ritual reminds the Israelites that they are servants of the Lord. They belong to somebody else. They were bought with a price. They are redeemed for a purpose. They belong to God. This ritual stood the test of time. If we fast forward to the New Testament, Jesus was also consecrated for the Lord's service as the firstborn of his mother's womb. If you look to the screens, Luke 2, 22 to 24. We see this play out in the life of Christ now. It says, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, the him here is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And then it notes, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, shall be set apart, shall be redeemed and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law. Then notice the sacrifice that they give, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Ironically, Jesus here in this passage, fast-forwarding 1,400 years 
down the road is redeemed by a pair of birds, which in context would have been the sacrifice for a poor family. Jesus lived in a poor family, and so they could substitute, instead of the more expensive lamb, they could give two birds. But we know also that the Lamb of God is present in this transaction, isn't he? Jesus is the Lamb of God. And it was not as if Jesus needed redemption, but rather to evidence that he does this. He fulfills all righteousness under the law. Jesus did everything there was to do to fulfill all righteousness. What do I mean by that? Jesus was perfect. He did everything perfectly. And we too, church, have been redeemed. Just as the substitutionary sacrifice of the lamb redeemed the firstborn, the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus has bought our freedom, those who are in Christ. We are free from the weight of sin and death. And we are set apart for God's purpose. So we're not just set free to wander aimlessly in a desert. We are set free for a purpose of God. We are consecrated for God. We are redeemed and then equipped for God's purpose. Which brings us to our next point. We are equipped with knowledge of the Lord's faithfulness. We are equipped with knowledge of the Lord's faithfulness. Let's read uh, verses 3 to 10 if you look to your Bibles. It says, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. And I want you to hear these words. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Then he says, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with it a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year, equipped with knowledge of the Lord's faithfulness. Another aspect of the Passover was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was yet another reminder of God's faithfulness to Israel. Remember, we had that point last week, remembrance. A remembrance, that's what the Passover was to Israel. Through performing this ritual, the the Feast of Unleavened Bread, God's people were reminded of God's faithfulness. And they grew in knowledge. When we're reminded of something, when we memorize something, I can remember back in in elementary school, we memorized times tables, right? That was just a horrible thing to do, wasn't it? You have this big table of multiplication tables, or maybe when you got home, mom had flashcards, and it was to help you remember those times tables. And I'm thankful for that years later that I can 
rattle those off quickly, right off the top of my head. I can remember them because I was reminded constantly with those flashcards. Through performing this remembrance or reminder, this ritual, God's people were reminded of God's faithfulness. They grew in knowledge around this festival and the Passover meal. They were equipped with knowledge of what the Lord had done for them. Which leads to, if we picture it now, it leads to a discussion around the family table. They're eating a meal together. Verses 8 to 10. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. I want to ask you, how many of us have these types of discussions around the family dinner table? I mean, who's, who still eats at the family dinner table, right? You set, up, you set aside that place to sit down and eat together. Talking with your family or talking with your spouse, son or daughter, this is what the Lord has done for me. That's what I can picture in this passage as they gather around this feast. This is what the Lord did for us. Imagine if we would have those kinds of conversations within our family. This is what Jesus did for me. This is what he saved me from. This is where he's brought me from. This is how he has transformed my life. These rituals such as Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were not meant to be empty in practice. There was something sacred going on here. A growth of knowledge of the Lord's faithfulness. A remembrance of all that God had done for them. The text also notes that God's word shall be a memorial, it says, between your eyes and on your mouth. The Jews later would, would literally tie small leather boxes onto their foreheads. Called, they were called phylacteries. Everybody say phylactery. Oh, come on, that was weak. Say phylactery. Thank you. Okay, and they would put scripture inside of these boxes that would be tied to their head. Thank goodness we don't have to do that anymore. Can you imagine walking around with this leather box tied to your forehead? Especially when it's like a million degrees outside, right? They were to remember God's word. It was to be as if it was right between their eyes, in their minds and in their hearts. And church, we too are to remember and and memorialize God's word, to entrust God's word to our head and to our heart, to know it, to read it, to trust it. And each and every Sunday we gather to remember and worship all that the Lord has done for us. It's in a sense a ritual that we come together. And my hope is that it's not just some sort of empty ritual where we come in and we check the box and then I leave and I'm on with my day. But rather that we meet with God in this place gathered with God's people. That we gather to remember and worship all that the Lord has done for us. It's why we join together as a church family on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, the day that Christ resurrected. 
We gather around God's Word for instruction. We gather to sing and bring honor to Jesus. We gather around the Lord's table to receive communion. And we gather beside the baptistry to affirm and celebrate a new believer's profession of faith. We must be equipped with the knowledge of the Lord's faithfulness. We don't do these things as an empty ritual. We do these things because God has called us to, and we meet God in these types of places. We remember the Lord's faithfulness to us when we gather. It is also through this knowledge that the Israelites remembered and honored Joseph's instruction. Joseph had lived hundreds of years before them. He was the reason why they're in Egypt. Verse 19 in chapter 13 says this. It says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. We witness a knowledge and deeply held belief in God's sovereignty and providence by Joseph. Because Joseph predicted at the end of Genesis, if you read the end of Genesis, the Genesis closes out with Joseph saying, my people are going to be delivered up out of this place, out of Egypt. Take my bones with you. I don't want to stay here. Take me to the land that my father has promised. And the Israelites knew this. Joseph, by faith, declared hundreds of years prior that his bones would be carried out of Egypt and his people would be delivered. He knew that that would happen. Hebrews 11.22 tells us, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. They knew God's promises and plans because they were equipped with knowledge. Church, we too are equipped with knowledge when we study and entrust God's word to our heart. When we gather with his people under the instruction of the Bible. It's the centerpiece of our worship gathering. The preaching and proclamation of the word to edify and grow us in the Lord and to help us to remember his faithfulness to us. They were not only equipped with knowledge, but also our next point, they were equipped for battle. They were equipped for battle. If you look to verse 17, we'll read 17 to 22. Now we're drawn back into the story, the narrative story here. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, although that was near. So that was the logical way to go. It was shorter. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Verse 20, and they moved on from Sukkoth and they camped at Itham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. The last section of this passage is so amazing and exciting, isn't it? That picture of the cloud and the fire leading God's people. 
We leave the narrative for a few moments at the beginning to remember and to understand what it means to be set apart and redeemed and to have a substitute. And now we're drawn back into the story with this amazing picture. God is, is with them in a pillar of, of cloud and a pillar of fire. And it notes within this passage that they were equipped for battle. Did you guys notice that? They were equipped for battle. Verse 18, but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. The literal translation of this, of this word battle means battle formation. They were in formation. It doesn't necessarily mean that they had swords drawn, I don't believe. We cannot lose sight of the fact that the, that the narrative just told us that they would turn and run back to Egypt, right, if they engage with the Philistines. You guys recall that from that passage we just read. That's why God's taken them on the longer route. God knew what his people could handle at this point, but it doesn't change the fact that they are battle-ready. The battle formation gives us a great picture of how they are formed and journeying together. They're ready. They're ready for God's direction. It gives us this idea that they had what they needed for their journey. They were equipped just what they needed. And if we recall from the last chapter, it included the gold and silver that they had plundered from the Egyptians. So they had some stuff with them. They weren't stripped bare, but they were equipped for the battle by being what I would call wartime ready. They were wartime ready. Let me illustrate this for you. During World War II, many factories throughout America diverted resources away from their normal manufacturing to produce necessities for war, right? We saw this also this past year. Early on in the recent pandemic, many industries stopped regular production to increase production on person, what we call personal protective equipment. A, a three words that we probably never want to hear again, right? After 2020, Ford began making ventilators. Other manufacturers began producing masks. Even the local bourbon distilleries produced hand sanitizer noting the distinctive smell of that stuff, right? A smell we probably never want to smell again. Why did they do this? It's what I, I liken to a wartime or battle-ready lifestyle. They are doing what needed to be done in order to be ready for the war. In World War II, it was supplies for the battlefront. During the recent pandemic, it was personal protective equipment to help keep people safe. Because those items were more important than the items that they normally produced. It was more important for a season for Ford to produce ventilators to help people keep living than it was to produce trucks. And so we can draw application from this phrase, battle ready, or as John Piper puts it, a wartime lifestyle. If you look to the screens... John Piper says, as I love this, this point he makes, is a wartime lifestyle implies that there is a great and worthy cause for which to spend and be spent. That cause is the cause of Christ. That's our battle that we see the kingdom of God advancing through the proclamation of truth and in love and in grace and in mercy, just like the Israelites were redeemed for the purpose of revealing God's redemptive plan and to bring Him glory, we too are set apart on mission. 
We are all, in a certain sense, God's missionaries. Church, we are missionaries when we leave this place. We're entering the mission field. Ready and willing to go where our commander sends us. Ready and willing to take part in what God has called us to do. And so I ask you this question. Are you battle ready? Are you living a wartime lifestyle? Do we understand that there is a great and worthy cause for which to spend and be spent? We're not simply building our own little kingdoms, but we're laboring for God's kingdom. For God's glory. For something far greater than you or me or even for North Bullet Christian Church. We are laboring for this, the kingdom of God. To see the kingdom advance. Are we willing and equipped like the industries from World War II to cease producing what brings us personal gain in order to focus on the mission of God all for His glory? That's hard to do, isn't it? Look at your life. It is it equipped and in order enough to divert what is necessary for the cause of the greater kingdom in which we serve? Are things ordered and formed in your life that you are battle ready? Lastly, our last point, they were equipped with God's presence, weren't they? They were equipped with God's presence. Verse 21 to 22, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, hear this, did not depart from before the people. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord didn't depart from them. The Lord is near His people. God has heard their cry. God has acted in deliverance. And now God's presence is with His people. The word for cloud here literally means that they were covered. Isn't that, isn't that a pretty picture? It's beautiful. They're covered by God. They have their covering. They were covered by the presence of God. It's amazing. The Israelites have been covered by a cloud of darkness for hundreds of years. Distant, enslaved, held back. And now they have been freed. And they're not only free, but they're covered by God. God is their covering. What an incredible change of circumstances, right? They're no longer covered by darkness. They're covered by the light of God leading them. Let me ask you, can you relate to that? Where you were covered by darkness, but now you are covered by the light of Christ. When the cloud of darkness was lifted from your eyes, the ways of this world became strangely clear. clear. The lure of sin became increasingly detestable. And a weight was lifted off your shoulders when God called your name. When the Holy Spirit moved upon you and you began to walk with the Lord. When you were called from darkness into light. You may ask, why doesn't God lead us in this manner? How come I don't have a cloud out in front of me leading me? How come I don't have a pillar of fire by night? Why doesn't God work like that anymore? Actually, we have something better, don't we? 
Jesus promised this in John fourteen fifteen to 17. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he says this, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Notice that helper there is a capital H. It's a name. He says, to be with you forever. He says, the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be, what is that? In you. The spirit of truth, Christian, is in you. The spirit of God, Christian, has filled you. God is so good. He doesn't lead us now by a pillar of fire in front of us. Rather, his fire has filled us. And it refines us and it guides us. God leads us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Christian, God's Spirit has filled you. Have I been clear on that one? God's Spirit has filled you. You are even more near to God than the fire-led Israelites because He has filled you with this, a full measure of Himself. He's given you all you need to sustain you, to help you. His name is the Helper. What a fitting title, isn't it? The Helper. He helps carrying us at times leading us through his voice, that still, small voice that speaks to you. Leading us through the power to understand his word. That's all you need is the spirit. I have a whole lot of books in my office, but all I need is God's holy word and his spirit indwelling me to grow in the knowledge of him. We have all we need in the Spirit of God, don't we, church? We have all we need. We are what I would call Spirit-empowered. Someone who's empowered is is given life, is given the ability to move forward. We are Spirit-empowered. And so I end with this. You've been redeemed by the Lamb of God, been set apart for his purposes. And so we must be equipped with a knowledge of his faithfulness, ready and alert by living a wartime lifestyle. And don't forget this, led by his Holy Spirit that has filled us, guides us, convicts us. And when we're laboring, when we're wandering through the sand of the desert, he's drawing us. He's drawing us along. He's pulling us. He's empowering us. At times, we can relate to what the Israelites must have felt. The joy of deliverance, but also before them, they have the uncertainty of the desert, don't they? Can anybody relate to that? And so we remember at this junction, at this point, that that we have been delivered, but many of us are walking through the desert and remember God's fire and spirit has filled you. Hang on, hold on, keep walking in 